I'm Kimberly Crenshaw, and this is Intersectionality Matters, the podcast that brings intersectionality to life by exploring the hidden dimensions of today's most pressing issues, from Say Her Name and COVID to the war on CRT and the global rise of fascism. This idea travelogue lifts up the work of leading activists, artists, and scholars, and helps listeners understand politics, the law, social movements, and even their own lives in deeper, more nuanced ways. The first time I was in the same room as author George Johnson, we were in L.A. at a summit on diversity in the entertainment industry. They took the stage to give their speech, and within the first minute, they were already speaking my language. Most of us in this room grew up with people we could look up to people that we felt reflected in. But for me and kids like me, we learned about James Baldwin, we learned about Angela Davis, and so many other black pioneers, but they always kept the one part out about them, the queerness that made them different too. I learned about Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, but somehow the other M, Marsha P. Johnson, never got her story told, still being one of our greatest civil rights leaders and part of why we have LGBTQ rights today. The theft of these heroes is why I will never let another kid like me not know that they have history, legacy, ancestry, and most important, a person like me that they can feel reflected in. George M. Johnson is an award-winning author and executive producer. They're also the most banned Black author in the United States today. Their book, All Boys Aren't Blue, is a memoir about the experience of growing up Black and gay in America. It's aimed at young adults, but it's essential reading for everyone. George wrote it so that kids like him wouldn't have to grow up without literature that affirms who they are. When you have to read books or see TV shows where you don't see yourself reflected, you start to question if you even exist in this world. My favorite quote is by the mighty Toni Morrison. If there's a book you want to read and it hasn't been written yet, then you must write. According to the nonprofit PEN America, All Boys Aren't Blue was the second most banned book of the 2021-2022 school year. By now, you probably know about the crusade against critical race theory. It also includes the campaign against all sorts of critical thinking, anti-racism, queer theory, Black studies, and any notion that challenges the idea that America was born perfect and just got better. You may even live near a school district where books like George's are targeted for removal. The anti-CRT crusade behind these book bans is a threat to our kids and our communities. George, like me, has been ringing the alarm about what's at stake for African Americans if we don't push back. Black queer history is under attack. So is Black feminism, intersectionality, and other frameworks that help us understand where we've been. Frameworks that give us the language to speak truth to power. Clearly, something, many things, need to be done to fight back. And AAPF has been in the trenches doing just that. Around this time last year, my team and I hit the road for our Books Unbanned bus tour. We drove from George Floyd Square in Minneapolis to Florida, the place where the truth about Black history goes to die. 
We met with folks in 16 states and 26 cities along the way. We gave away banned books by black authors to thousands of you, including my work in George's. The list of titles which we gave out was long, too long as far as I'm concerned. And every time an author is added to that list, we inch closer to losing our freedom to learn. When that freedom goes, our democracy goes next. That's why my team and I have pretty much been on the road ever since. We turned the Books Unbanned tour into a beautiful installation and hit the road again this summer. At every stop, we hooked y'all up with a banned book that you've been meaning to read. The team brought the installation to Netroots, to Essence Fest, to the NAACP's annual convention, and we even set up shop with my sorors at the Delta Sigma Theta convention in Indianapolis. Every single one of you was fired up about this dangerous censorship. And while none of us should have to be in this fight, at this late date in our quest for freedom, there's at least consolation in the fact that we're in this thing together. All Boys Aren't Blue. I chose it because, well, A, I love YA. I'm really trying to absorb, in a really easy, digestible form, new perspectives. I'm a white cis female. You know, I exist in a very privileged world, and this book just caught my eye. There's beautiful graphics on the front, beautiful artistry, and it just sounded like a really rad perspective. I have been in the professoriate for more than 25 years now. What we teach is not about indoctrination. We're not attempting to change anyone's mind about what they believe and how they live their lives. What we have always done at every institution I've ever worked at has been about really providing information and allowing students to engage in critical thinking about their identity as individuals in a democratic society who live in a diverse society. When I think about young people, I think about people like my nephew. They love to see representations of themselves in books that I buy, that I read to them, that they read themselves and they share amongst them friends. We're talking about kids 10 to 13 years old. So I know how important representation is and how that can open the whole world up for you. This year, as we kick off Banned Book Week, I'm excited to share that we're partnering with our friends at the New Republic on a brand new tour. We've got a bookmobile and some amazing things planned. To kick off the tour, I'll be joined at the Brooklyn Book Festival in conversation with some brilliant people that our podcast listeners will recognize, like Ibram X. Kendi, who joined us on episode 50. is all happening on October 1st. Check out the show notes for more information. To get us in the spirit of Band Book Week, which officially starts on October 1st, I couldn't have dreamt of a better guest than George M. Johnson. They joined in August for homeroom at our fourth annual Critical Race Theory Summer School, where we had an in-depth one-on-one conversation to familiarize folks with what we're up against and to help us celebrate George's breakthrough in spite of all the efforts to silence them. Here's our conversation. It is my pleasure to welcome into homeroom George M. Johnson, the award-winning author of the New York Times best-selling young adult memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue. 
George, I am so happy to have you on Summer School Homeroom today. You're, you're calling us from California, so I know it's early out there. <laughs> Love you. Appreciate you. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me. So I, I got to tell you a little bit of a story. I got to tell you a story, and I have to tell Homeroom the story. So to you, I have to tell you that we went on a 17-state tour giving away the books that they don't want our people to have and at every stop we could not hold on to your book people <laughs> were just like oh i heard about this book and they were grabbing it one of our colleagues told a story about how in detroit we had a black grandmother who came up and asked for the book because she wanted to understand how to speak to her queer grandchild. And we were all so struck by this. I mean, the book, obviously, it's reaching all sorts of populations to be on the New York Times bestselling list. There's another list we're going to talk about in a minute. Right? <laughs> um, but that's the story that I wanted to bring to you, just witnessing how your book was creating an environment that your family naturally provided for you. And you tell yeah. the story in the book of how accepting and loving your family was and, and particularly your nana. So I was moved by that and moved that other nanas were being brought into the same relationship because of your book. So that's the part I wanted to share with you. The part I want to share with everyone else. So I had the opportunity to meet George in California. We were both attending an event for people in the industry out there that were interested in advancing inclusion, inclusive stories, inclusive hiring in the industry. And George gave an amazing talk that brought down the house. There's so much that I was struck by, but importantly, you started with, they always steal our heroes. They take them away. And then you quote Toni Morrison to say, if there's a book that you want to read and it hasn't been written, then you must write it. And that was the inspiration for you to write this book. So Tell us more about, first of all, the inspiration behind the book. So we at least are on the same page about what the book is doing so that we can better understand why we have to fight with everything we've got, this effort to unwrite what you have written, to censor it, to take it away from the grandmothers and the queer children and everybody else who needs yeah. to know this story. Yeah, I mean, realistically, this book comes from a place of, one, growing up as a young queer uh, adult, I didn't have anything that represented me, not on television, not in books. And so I wanted to make sure that this current generation, Gen Z, uh, didn't have to go through the same struggles I went through with not being able to read about themselves and read about their own experiences and also having a roadmap to prepare them for the experiences that they will face in the world because their experiences look different than the heterosexual Black child. And two, unfortunately, this book was written from a place of trying to protect young Black queer adults. I remember there was this young boy named Giovanni Melton who in November of 2017 was a young Black gay boy who was killed by his father. And the reporting that came out said that his father said, I would rather have a dead son than a gay son. And so that also became the catalyst because I wanted to be able to start to change people's minds and thoughts about what love actually looks like for queer children outside of the societal 
pressures to continue to oppress LGBTQ people. Unfortunately, my community is on the heels of O'Shea Sibley being murdered for simply voguing at a gas station to Beyonce's Renaissance. That was just two days ago. He was a 28-year-old dancer who was Black and queer. And so, again, when I say all boys aren't blue, O'Shea Sibley is a boy who wasn't blue. And simply his joy, his joy, which was an act of resistance, is now the thing that has gotten him killed. And so that's what this book really is at the heart of it. It is about love. It is about family. It is about the fact that we don't have to oppress. We don't have to shun. We don't have to shame LGBTQ kids. And it's that reminder to people that when you say and you make the choice or the decision to have a child, you do not know what that child will be innately. And people are so built in their minds like, oh, I'm going to have a kid. They just automatically go to the natural assumption that their kid is going to be heterosexual. Before you make the decision to have a child, you need to prepare yourself if your child is non-binary, if your child will be trans, if your child will be gay or lesbian, because that is something that you cannot control. But it is something that once you made that decision to say, I'm going to have a child, it is your duty to nurture and not to shame and not to dismiss and not to shun. And that is what the book is ultimately about. I just also wanted to lift up the name of Michelle Peacock, Kira Ross, two Black lesbians who are also killed by, who, who knows all the different layers of hatred, but we know that they were killed for who they were, who they were perceived to be. That's so much a part of the growing violence that we have to face in this country across so many groups of people who are targeted by the virulent hatred that's been unleashed. And that is part of the effort to censor our stories and our voices. But what I want to lift up, because I want to talk about the censorship in a minute, but I want people to understand what a beautiful story that you are telling about a Black family. There's been a lot of framing of Black families as being disproportionately out of control, homophobic, that there is no love there. That's kind of a standard narrative out there. And you kind of turn that on its head and you talk about how you were embraced. You have a trans cousin who was embraced. This is a story that is so eye-opening and it undermines the belief that Black families can only be one way. I'm wondering what kind of reaction you've gotten from beginning to the end? Like when you were selling the book, did people go, ah, this isn't the story we were expecting to hear, right? And now that you've told the book, what kind of reactions you've gotten? Yeah, the reaction in the beginning was that I think people entered it, oh, this is going to be like a whole lot of trauma and tragedy. I think most people assumed the attack would be from my own family. And I will say that I think even some hoped that the attack would be from my own family. Even those banning the books, I think that's partly why they want to get it out of here is because it's showing a Black family that did not harm their child. So I think most people did enter it thinking that. Most people weren't expecting that I grew up in a family that was very queer affirming and that I had a grandmother who was pretty radical in her feminism and had very, very interesting ideas just around gender roles and gender norms. Like she just never ascribed to them. And she was always a tougher type of woman. The way she just operated with us and the things she built in us, like she did not care if we were boys or girls. Everybody needed to know how to cook. Everybody needed to know how to clean. She ended up with seven grandsons, but she had four grandsons that she raised, me, my younger brother, and my two cousins. And every Saturday morning, we had to clean that house from top to bottom. It did not matter that we were boys. She just did not see roles in that way. 
And I think now on the backside coming out of it, I think the beautiful thing is I'm watching Black families and Black folks read the book and start to adjust the ways in which they are treating their queer children. I've seen it actually have a profound impact on queer families. And what I've seen also happen is a lot of young queer adults, I would say between the ages of like 21 and 30, have read the book and given the book to like their mom or given the book to their dad and simply just said, this is who I am, just read the book. And it's helped bridge that relationship between them. I've even had a line brother, I'm a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, my line brother read the book and just was blown away and gave the book to his mother and was like, you know, we really don't ever talk about this, but you should read George's story. It's going to help you understand who I am. And it has totally helped them with their relationship. So I think that's the beautiful thing that I'm noticing on the back end is that the book has become the tool almost to help people learn the people who they were raising and to help them to start to build new relationships based on that person that they are. It underscores all the more the role of Black literature, the role of narrative, the role of memoir. And as you pointed out at the beginning, there was an absence that you sought to fill by putting your story in it. I have to tell you that I'm in the process of trying to write my memoir. First of all, yours is one that you just can't put down. So folks, if you haven't read it yet, go and get it and just spend a little bit more time with George and with a Black family who can show you how it's done. I wanted your Nana. I was like, oh, man, I love this woman, especially when she called you in to help her get out the girdle and said, listen, (laughs) y'all need to be ready for this because one of these days I'm going to have to ask you to do more. I just fell out because it was like I could see her and just be part of your family. So I just uh, really (laughs) enjoyed that. And that you knew these were the kinds of stories that people would be able to plug into and then sort of reimagine uh, what a Black family who is queer loving actually looks like. Now, you have another dubious distinction. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Of being the most banned Black queer author in the country right now. You have the dubious distinction of even having criminal charges being brought against you and this book. And so of the many things that obviously this implicates, one is the question of where are the free speech people? Where are the artists? Where are other folks in the various social justice communities that we are in? So I guess the first thing is, are you surprised about how widespread this idea of we don't like these narratives, so we are going to basically rip out their tongues. We don't want them speaking, telling these stories, and we're going to suppress it. Has that been surprising to you? Um, honestly, it's, it's not surprising. I think what's surprising is how few people have been able to make this happen because it's not a lot of people. And I remember like when when I got banned in Florida and they then enacted this law where parents could opt their children out of being able to check out certain books. Mm -hmm. And so then they waited like six months and then did like a research study on the four largest education districts in Florida, which comprise of 186,000 students and only 793 parents opted to prevent their kids from reading books. And so it lets you know that it's a very small group of people 
that are literally controlling the narrative of education in this country. I believe they said 90% of the books that have been banned can be traced back to 11 people. Like 11 people 11 have created people. this cataclysmic thing across the country simply because they just send out these lists that have all these books on it. Someone turns the list in on behalf of that person in a different state. And then they get to pulling books. So unfortunately, I'm not surprised because this was a very concerted effort that they put in on the other side, which mm -hmm. oftentimes is the problem when you look at the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is that one is playing chess, the other is kind of playing checkers, like the other one is yeah. thinking about the next move. <laughs> where the other people have thought like 10 years from now, they knew they wanted to take over school boards. Yes. And so they started that fight 10 years ago. And so now when we're watching all this happen and everybody's like, well, what's happening? What's happening? It's like, they've been, they've been planning this for 10 years. Like you saw them doing this. So it's not surprising, unfortunately. I think the thing I'm most surprised about though, like you were mentioning is the silence. The silence. The yeah. The silence of some. Of too many, George including my own fraternity, including the black church. The NAACP finally issued a travel advisory to Florida, but you know, you didn't issue that advisory when they did the don't say gay bill and it became unsafe for black for people to go to Florida, right? You waited until it became unsafe for heterosexual black folks before you wanted to say now it's now Florida's unsafe. But it was unsafe for black queer people for at least a year before that, right? And so it's like, I'm watching still the homophobia and transphobia still play a major, and even the misogyny is still playing a major role in some of the larger black organizations and whether they're going to support us or not in fighting against the book bans, because I think secretly a lot of them don't like our books either. Mm -hmm. And that's the unfortunate mm -hmm. thing because our books also speak to to the ways in which our own community can be oppressive towards us. Our yeah. own community is homophobic. Our own community is transphobic. Our own community is sexist and misogynistic still. And people don't like that mirror being reflected in their faces either. It's just been shocking to me how hard it has been to get the entire progressive community to understand that this war on woke is a war on every last one of us, right? I mean, this started with Trump's executive order attacking intersectionality, attacking critical race theory, attacking every equal opportunity oriented kind of discourse there is. And I mean, I could tell you, I was in touch with a lot of folks from racial justice organizations, LGBTQIA organizations, women's organizations, labor unions. And the initial thought was, well, this is just a campaign tactic. It's going to go away when Biden withdraws the order. Well, it did not go away. It got bigger and bigger and bigger. And for the most part, you know, people didn't really show up until, first of all, they saw the critical race theory wasn't just about us. It was about, right. you know, anything about race. And then right. it wasn't just going to be about race. It was going to apply to LGBTQ issues. And it wasn't just going to end with K through 12. It was going to go to the universities. And it wasn't just going to stop at the universities. It was going to go to DEI. So yes. it has moved from one to another, to another, to another, until the moment that we're all sort of gathered up and identified as people whose stories cannot be told. So I'm wondering whether, as you look at this now, and you know, we were at, in Hollywood, just as I mentioned, you talked about how, even though this is a best-selling book, it was optioned that the studios now are 
cooling their heels. <laughs> so is this another moment where another space, another group now isn't prepared to fight for our stories? Yes. I mean, I think it's part and parcel. Like sometimes optioning this looks good for our studio because mm -hmm. it someone posted the other day on Twitter all the black books over the last three years that have been optioned that have not been turned into anything. Wow. And that was the first time I had even seen it. And I was like, wow, I didn't realize there was so many of us that had got these crucial stories optioned to be turned into a different media format and they haven't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it really is, well, this looks good because you get the big announcement. So people think it's coming, but it's like, look, we're, we're, we're being progressive and we're trying to tell more progressive stories, but oh, these studios are just blocking us. And it's like, these studios probably never had any intention of telling any of these stories, yeah. right? Until you you meet the right people or the right person to be able to do it. And again, I have now met several people and have had several meetings. And now those things that had kind of went silent and cold are now hot. And now everybody wants it because the right yeah. people, I'm not gonna say their names, but they have picked up the baton and were like, no, we are taking these stories forward and we're gonna carry you with us, right? Yeah. Um, but that's an unfortunate truth that it's about meeting the right person. And I can even say, I was at this event and a person who passed on the story didn't even realize that she had passed on the story, really never even got to her desk. And so it, it was one of those revelatory things where it was like, oh, she never even seen it. Then she meets me and she hears it. She's like, oh my God, where is this story been? And I'm like, I pulled up the email, like it, it said your studio passed. And it's like, wait, what? All of these things start to come together and it's like, you just realize that the machine sometimes it's like, unfortunately, our stories are the exception still. They're yeah. not the rule. And no amount of times that we have proven over and over again that Black stories make money in movie theaters, that Black stories do well on television, that Black as a buying base has always been one of the strongest bases. These institutions are still run by people who do not want to see our stories because they know our stories shift. They actually move our community. I feel like mm -hmm. when white folks watch stories, they watch stories to watch stories. They're like, oh, that's sad, right? Black folks <laughs> watch stories and become empowered, empowered mm -hmm. to change, empowered to vote, empowered to move, empowered to fight. And they, they retain the knowledge. We actually retain the knowledge of our stories to make us better people and better within our communities. And that's what they're afraid of. They're afraid mm -hmm. of us figuring it out all together as a coalition and starting to move like a coalition. Yeah, yeah. And you know, while we were there, I think the story and variety dropped that within a period of 10 days, something like six or seven diversity officers in the major studios were either fired or got reassigned. This was what, to a little bit more than two years, three, three years after George Floyd. So all of the big pronouncements, we're telling Black stories, we're standing with you, blah, blah, blah. As you said, to get all of the publicity out of it. But then when it came to following through, I mean, what was it? Diversity fatigue after three years of doing what? I mean, basically this was a lot of window dressing that then trickled back to very little. So storytelling in Hollywood, still one of the most significant arenas for struggle for precisely the reasons that you just said, when we see our stories, tell our stories, it tells us that we are not alone. It tells us that we are part 
of the story. And it is up to us to actually write the next chapters of it. I'm so happy to hear that the powerful talk that you gave actually hit the right chord. Now I'm going to like get on the phone and say, hey, <laughs> you know, let's tell a story about intersectionality too, which beautifully your book also does. So I want to uh, spend just a couple minutes talking about the challenge of writing intersectionally about a young queer black child. So there are stories that focus just on being queer and take out the racial angle. Right. And there are others that tell a story about being race. They, they might tell a story about growing up in a space where you're constantly having to navigate anti-blackness, but they don't deal with the queer range of issues that happen right. inside of families, in schools, in society. Your story is bringing them together. So you are telling an intersectional story. Our politics don't always keep up with the complexities that we're trying to tell. Yeah. And so I'm wondering, as you look at like the response to Florida, you look at the response to Don't Say Gay, that sometimes overlooks that many of the youth impacted by Don't Say Gay are queer, but also doesn't talk about the fact that the anti-Blackness in DeSantis's regime also impacts them. So there's an imbalance in what can be articulated. The intersectional erasure often plays out even within our ally spaces, places that we're at home. So what's your approach, Ben, to say, look, this is an intersectional story. It's not just a race story. It's not just a, a story about sexuality or gender expression, gender identity. This is about the intersections. You've got to embrace all of this when you're fighting back against DeSantis. I don't look at anything in a silo. And I think that's really what the biggest issue is currently happening today, is that people look at everything that happens in a silo. The book bans are tied to the DEI, is tied to Roe v. Wade. These are not just three separate isolated incidents that are happening, right? The 2019 census came out and it said that Gen Z was going to be the first generation that was more non-white than white. You then watch the first thing that starts happening is all of a sudden they attack the Department of Education for this particular generation because the books that have been going into the classrooms have been starting to mirror the actual demographic. And so all of those catchers in the rye that we had to read as kids and last menagerie, they're all going out the window for the hate you give for Dear Martin for All Boys Aren't Blue and starting to reflect the actual demographic that is within the Gen Z population. The second thing about that census, it said that Gen Z was identifying as almost 20% LGBTQ, which means that one in five of those kids are already identifying as queer, which means that now you have people who most students know a queer person. So now most of that generation lives in a pocket where they at least know one queer person or multiple queer people, because if it's 20 kids in the classroom, that means about four kids in the, every classroom are identifying as queer. So you watch then they say, okay, now we're going to do a don't say gay bill. Now we're going to do the erasure of CRT. Now we're going to force white women to have more children, because that's really what the ultimate goal is, because mm -hmm. white women are the highest percentage of abortions and the lowest percentage of having children in the country at this time. So you look at it and you have to tie it all together, right? Mm -hmm. Now you're watching states want to roll back protections on child permits for working. 
Right, because you know, because of Roe v. Wade, there's gonna be an influx of children, which means there's gonna be an influx of more labor force, and we need to make sure that these black and brown kids go into the labor force while these white kids become the next governors, senators, or whatever we have to do. <laughs> so it's all tied together. And I think that was always my approach with writing All Boys on Blue. I don't wanna write this from a siloed place because I walk into every room as a black queer person. And if I only look at my blackness, then I'm being harmed on this side, if I only look at my queerness, then I'm being harmed on this side and not protecting myself, right? The Black heterosexual kid doesn't have to solely focus on the HIV epidemic. The Black queer kid, who at some point will go into their sexual space, does have to worry about the HIV epidemic because it is still an epidemic within Black queer community. So if I only write about my experience from this one side, I'm not protecting the Black queer kid who has the intersection that changes what his health risk factors are. And so I think that's why I approached the book in that way, because there are different risk factors that will come simply because of how you identify or what your sexuality is. And I think that's the part that people miss oftentimes. When people say, oh, you got to be Black first, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because when this queer law goes into effect, as a Black queer person, I'm still harmed by that law. And so I can't just pick and choose when I want to be this first or when I want to be that first. And because mm -hmm. I truly believe that Black people were the first people on this planet, I already believe that Blackness is inherently queer and that queerness is inherently Black. And they go mm -hmm. in this full circle together. So you cannot separate queerness from Blackness, especially because even if you look at it from a sociopolitical standpoint, Black people are seen as an oddity to this world. And so we are already seen as the queer thing to the world, which is why the world operates on anti-Blackness to begin with. Mm -hmm. And that is precisely perhaps why one of the theories that DeSantis went after in attacking the AP Black Studies course was Black queer theory, right? The, the recognition that yes. all of these features were coming together and telling story about how queerness has been racialized, how racialized is part of queering, all of these concepts that help not just Black people, but everybody understand the contours of their life better is threatening. So they went after that, intersectionality, Black feminism, I'll end with just acknowledging the extent to which our enemies are not just the DeSantis's of the world, but our friends, our institutions who ought to know better and are just sitting and, and letting it go, or even worse, appeasing some of these demands. So yesterday, one of our panels was on the politics of appeasement. It was a way of looking at how the college board, for example, went along with DeSantis's demand to take out queer theory and, and feminism and intersectionality. So trying to make the right happy is almost as damaging, if not more so, you know, then the small number of the loudmouths on the right who are trying to suppress us, they can't do it without the participation of institutions like publishing houses, the college board. But with that as the backdrop, you said, look, they're trying to silence me. So what I did is I went out and got a contract for four more books. Yes. <laughs> that's the way to speak truth to power. So tell us a little bit about what we can expect from the mind <laughs> of George. Yeah, so I actually have my final edits due for my third book 
on Friday. Well, but, thank you all the more for taking time. <laughs> yes, so I'm literally go back to working on that. I have a second book out called We're Not Broken, which is dedicated to my grandmother. And the through line of that book is each chapter starts off with one of her quotes. And it talks about who she was as a Black woman from the South, uh, living in the North, who raised uh, four grandkids as like brothers. So I always call it, it's like that movie Stand By Me, but with Jennifer Lewis as a grandmother. <laughs> I love it. That's the best Everybody's grandmother, yes. Right. That's the best way to describe it. My third book is called Flamboyance, The Queer Harlem Renaissance I Never Knew. It is a mixed media format book. I'm partnering with the great, brilliant artist, Charlie Palmer, who did the cover for All Boys on Blue. He will be doing the illustrations of the characters I'm profiling. I'm profiling 12 queer people from the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, the book also has poetry written by me in it. And it's mm. basically a connecting of the past to the present that talks about the ways in which some of them live their lives closeted while others live their lives in the public eye, how queerness was viewed back then in the Black community because it is... Mm. There's just so much we, that people don't know about how queerness at times was shunned, but at times was appreciated within the elites of the Black community. And so mm -hmm. I think those stories are important. Um, it is a young adult book. I, I always like to start with the young adults because they're going to be the next people in power. So we got to put the power start in there. Fourth book comes out in 2025. It'll be my first middle grade book and my first fiction book. Once again, it is about two young kids on a basketball team. The young 13-year-old tells his best friend that he thinks he may be gay. The other kid accidentally lets it spill to the basketball team. It divides the entire school. And mm. then you have to watch how they have to come back together again. So it's like one of those breakup as friends to kind of building their way back up to friendship, you know, while while one kid is struggling with his identity. And that story is kind of based loosely on me and my cousin, who is one of my closest people in my life. But we went to middle school together and we were best friends, but it was hard for people to understand because I was so effeminate and he was so masculine. And so it's kind of based loosely on that relationship that I have with him. And then my fifth book is called There's Always Next Year that I'm co-writing with Leah Johnson. It is a Black queer romantic comedy. No. Um, so for young adults. So I'm very, very excited about that. Uh, in the television and film space, I'm working on a lot of things. Some things I can't really talk about yet. We could just say that All Boys Aren't Blue is moving forward, potentially yes. as a television show. So <laughs> the amazing. right connections are being made. All right, don't forget, we knew you <laughs> before. <laughs> when you show up on the Oscars red carpet, yes. we're going to be saying, George, remember us? <laughs> it has been such an honor. It's been a joy to meet you in person. It's been an honor to have you in uh, CRT Summer School. We are really excited to have the inside track. Now we can talk yes. like we know what's coming up. <laughs> um, the Mind of George Johnson. Thank you so much thank for you. being the courageous truth teller that you are, standing up, writing truth back to power. You are a national treasure and an inspiration to all of us. This episode of Intersectionality Matters was produced by senior producer Nicole Edwards and the team at the African American Policy Forum. Mixing by Sean Dunham. To support our show, subscribe, leave a review, and follow us on social media. I'm your host, Kimberly Crenshaw, and we'll be back soon. <laughs>